0: Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
1: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
2: And I'm Trace Allaway.
0: Tracy, I have a new idea for uh, an ETF that I think we should launch. <laughs> uh,
2: you and about a gazillion other people, but go on. So I think we should make a bros
0: ETF, like a uh, bro culture. I feel like is uh, is a really uh, is a really winning formula.
2: So I think um, I think the basic. Uh, can you say bitch on air? I don't know. Um, the basic bitch portfolio.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you just did, so I guess you. I guess so.
2: Sorry, everyone. Um, this is going to be the first episode of Odd Lots that comes with a disclaimer about uh, bad language. Uh, the basic bitch ETF portfolio has been this sort of long-running theme on uh, finance Twitter, and that's done pretty well, uh, at least in 2020. So things like Pinterest, um, some of the makeup companies, uh, those sorts of things, Starbucks. So I could see I could see the flip side of that being a bros ETF. Sure. Gaming stocks.
0: Yeah. Gaming. So we know video games have done extremely well. I mean, that's just incredible uh, sector. Of course, uh, you know, back last summer, we did that episode about uh, Domino's Pizza, which mm-hmm. I think like, you know, ordering pizza while you're playing video games. That's <laughs> obviously part of it. I imagine there's some like sports element. Um, oh, well, you could certainly put in um, DraftKings and some For of these sure. online gambling. Um, Pen Gaming, some of these online gambling names, and uh, there's also a beverage company that uh, I think fits right into the portfolio, and it's done extraordinarily well.
2: So I know which one you're talking about. This has become one of your favorite companies, not just because the story around bro culture is quite interesting right now. Lots of people are playing more video games. We're all stuck at home. And so maybe you want to drink more of this particular beverage while you're gaming, but also because the returns on this one have just been absolutely stunning.
0: Yeah, exactly right. So the company is uh, Monster Beverage. You've almost certainly seen them like at any deli or grocery store or anything. They're known for their big cans of heavily caffeinated drinks, sugary. they have like super aggressive label labels on them. It's like this sort of like very like macho, frankly, broy beverage and the stock has done phenomenally well, but depending on exactly what uh settings you use it's it might be the single best performing stock in history or certainly over the last twenty uh, or so years. I think it's up like eighty five thousand percent over the last 20 years or at one point it was like it's just unreal like it's like we're talking like bitcoin level returns actually you could probably put like bitcoin in the uh etf too um <laughs> but we're talking like a uh, bitcoin level returns for a company that sells uh sh- sugary caffeinated beverages
2: right and i think when most people think about the best performing stock of the past couple of decades, they're going to think about Amazon or Google or Apple or something like that. Not many people are going to think about, you know, a consumer facing beverage company. I have to tell you something. So I don't know much about Monster. Um, I've never had one of the energy drinks, although I am very aware of the branding and, uh, you know, their advertising strategy has been a big part of their success. And I'm sure we're going to get into that on the podcast. But I have to say, in the course of doing some research for this episode, I found the most amazing anecdote on Reddit.
0: Oh, tell oh. Of course, it came from Reddit. Of but course, it, that's perfect. What, what what's the anecdote?
2: So I think it was on the um the Financial Independence uh, Retirement Early board, but it was some guy who said he invested ninety thousand dollars in Monster Energy drinks. Um, I think this was in 2010 he posted and he said he'd invested 5 years ago so basically he had a 500% increase on that $90,000 position which made him a millionaire in the space of 5 years and the best part of it was so he wrote that in 2010 everyone on the message board basically said you are absolutely crazy i can't believe you have this huge chunk of portfolio of your portfolio in a single stock you need to sell it right now and of course had he held on to it I I don't even know what it would be worth now, but like the big spike in monster energy came after 2010. So you can only imagine what 90 K invested back in 2005 would look like after a 15 year uh, monster run in monster energy.
0: It's really incredible. I mean, it's like one of these like charts where you just like slice it up and you're like, holy crap, these are amazing returns. And then you zoom out and it looks even more amazing. It's just, uh, it's just incredible. So I want to get the story. How did this maker of uh, these drinks that I've actually never had one either? I don't think maybe I had one years ago, but, you know, I see them everywhere. How did it become this just mammoth player Um, company did? I think uh, over a billion in revenue last year in 2004, it was just forty nine million dollars. So the growth of the uh, fundamentals have been incredible. We are going to be speaking uh, with an analyst who will explain it. Uh, our guest today is Mark Astrakhan. He's an analyst at Stiefel. He covers consumer goods. He's going to tell us the story of a monster and why its uh, returns have been so monster. So, uh, Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Where did this company come from? It used to be like it was called something different. It was like uh, some sort of like natural beverage maker originally, right?
3: Yes, uh, it was called Hanson Natural up until a few years ago. Uh, The two guys who are running it. The now co-CEOs bought the business as an investment or as part of an investment group in the early 90s. It was selling juice uh, at the time. Uh, Southern California, I think they were living in London at that point, two South Africans looking for an investment and yeah, pulled some money together and bought the business, moved to California and started selling beverages.
2: So, how did the energy concept come about? Because I think around that time, there was already a very well known energy beverage with loads of caffeine uh, in the form of Red Bull. And I have to declare my interest here. I'm half Austrian. Red Bull comes from Austria. Lots of people don't know that. And so, uh, you know, my loyalty in the energy drink markets are already committed to Red (laughs) Bull. But I'm curious like, there was an incumbent with a strong brand, why did they decide to, uh, to take on that particular um, sector?
3: Well, maybe just to take a step back, because I think it's, it's interesting and important. So sure. the, the Austrian comment, you know, the, the guy who's running Red Bull, Red Bull, of course, is a private company, so there's not a whole lot of information out there, but having studied this sector for far too long and, and finding it as <laughs> interesting as it is, um, the guy who's running Red Bull, the CEO actually only owns about half of the company. He was a consumer uh, executive in the, the world before starting Red Bull. And he was traveling to Southeast Asia a lot and, and finding that he's, his travels from Europe to Southeast Asia were tiring and was in Thailand and found this drink called Creighton Dang, which is translated into Red Bull these days. And he decided he wanted to bring this back to to Europe with him. So he actually created a joint venture with the family of the founder of this this business and so what we know of red bull today actually originated as a a thai beverage which is still sold in a can that looks like it did in the early 80s in in a bunch of places around the world mainly in in that that part of the world china as as well but that's an aside he brings it back to to europe and starts selling it as red bull in these sleek cans as the first energy drink Uh, and so that is is kind of where the monster story begins. So Rodney and Hilton, the, the co-CEOs, were living in London and saw that Red Bull was starting out in, in Europe around the same time that they moved there and could see that this was obviously doing really well. So it had nothing to do with buying the Hanson natural juice business. But having seen the, the growth of the energy category, they thought it would be a good thing to try when they were running their their beverage business in the U.S. So before they launched Monster, they actually had some energy drink brands under the Hanson Natural uh, portfolio. I, I think it was Blue Sky Beverage. There were a few other ones, but they were launched in maybe the mid to late 90s. And the fact that you haven't heard from them suggests that they were probably a little bit too early. So they were always interested in the energy category, but it wasn't until, I think, 2002 or so that they and, and one of their partners uh, a guy named Mark Hall who now is a board member and also uh, one of the the chief innovators of the company decided to create this this thing called monster this edgier product than than Red Bull and you know the rest is sort of history
0: so basically Red Bull we sort of at the time and still is it's uh you know highly caffeinated it's associated with Extreme uh, sports I know they sponsor a lot of that stuff monster is basically like we're just going to go more extreme
3: Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair maybe starting with the 16 ounce can I, I think if if you were to think about the energy drink consumer I believe I think history kind of bears out as well as sales trends that the Red Bull and monster consumers are unique in that Red Bull sure went after that extreme consumer but it also early on focused on on on-premise, so bars and Mm -hmm. and restaurants. And it, it, as a result, or maybe coincidentally morphed into what I would consider more of a white collar beverage. And it was partly because it was sold at a premium, partly because it was a smaller can. Now you have a whole bunch of other packages for Red Bull 12 ounce, 16 ounce and and the like, but the original can is an 8.4 ounce can. And so it was, small in, in volume and expensive in 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 dollars or euros or whatever it was at the time. And so Monster decided they were going to come out with a 16 ounce to basically sell the same volume or same value, same price for twice the volume. And they also started to market it a bit more towards blue collar workers, construction workers, the like. They They flavored the product, I think, to be a little bit more unique than Red Bull. Red Bull was never something that I think people wanted to really enjoy drinking, and, and the folks at Monster uh, really focused on on palatability and something that they thought would would appeal. And it, especially from a very uh, sweet standpoint of the core green Monster, which was the original product, really did that to a, a certain unique set of consumers. But then they they added on that with a focus on much more of the the I don't know if it'd be a blue collar type of extreme sport, but but Red Bull was focused more on, on motor sport and on uh, well-known athletes and music and, and monster went a bit kind of next level to younger generations as well. Focusing on early on like X games, but focusing on things like video games, which really weren't uh, a focus at that point for Red Bull focusing on uh, MotoGP focusing on Supercross, you know, things that, that Red Bull not, wasn't necessarily focused on at the time and probably still to a large degree really isn't focused on. And so they were able to bring in a completely different consumer. So you, you've re- they've done a really good job of retaining that blue-collar uh, consumer, which I think is pretty important. You can look to see the, the, the green can, which is still their biggest best-selling product but also that they've now skewed I think a bit younger than Red Bull as well maybe their core consumer is kind of late teenager to 30 Red Bull's consumer probably comes in in mid 20s and 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 up and so they've really segmented the the energy drink category and as I said at the at the outset of the question I think if you you ask the consumers they would largely tell you they're they're a drinker of one and not the other and so I think that has really mm-hmm. led to the success of both businesses and, and interesting i mean we can get into the international expansion for for monster which has been quite successful but it's interesting that, that both businesses as best we can tell because as i said before red Bull's private so you don't have as much information but they're they're both still growing at, at unbelievably strong rates in the case of monster almost 20 years after the product was created in the case of red bull almost 35 years now still growing at an amazing rate
2: I think that uh, customer segmentation is really interesting because, you know, as I mentioned, I have had Red Bull uh, throughout my life. One of the worst cocktails I've ever had involved, um, I think it was Red Bull vodka and gummy bears, and it was absolutely disgusting. Um, but I haven't had a monster energy drink of any kind, but I am aware of the advertising campaign, uh, the very distinctive, um, can with the green claw marks. Uh, I think a lot of people have probably seen hats and t-shirts and things like that over the course of of their lives. But one thing I wanted to dive in. So we spoke a, a little bit about how the marketing was important here, the advertising, how the brand set itself apart from Red Bull. Can you well, you started to touch upon this with the uh, international expansion mentioned, but could you talk about the, uh, the distribution network here and um, I guess the, the deals that Monster struck with um, first AB InBev and then Coke?
3: Yeah, and, and it's, it's important from a, just a beverage standpoint to understand that, that basically what you, you try to do as a brand owner is to put yourself in a position to be distributed by the biggest and the best distributor over time. And so, you know, success sort of breeds success in that regard, meaning that you've got to get out there and kick the tires and sell the product to retailers, to distributors on a single case basis at the beginning. But as you get more success, you attract more attention. And the result is you have these networks of, of distributors of beverages who ultimately want to put more product on the truck. And the idea, of course, is to find the product that sells the fastest and also provides you the best profit in in doing so. And so as the energy category accelerated, as Monster Share accelerated, you started to see Monster get propositioned by a lot of distributors because of the success. And you think about it, too, you're taking a step back. The biggest non-alcoholic beverage category is carbonated soft drinks, energy at the time, 15 years ago, was a pimple of a pimple of size. And this behemoth of carbonated soft drinks was out there. If you look today, fast forward 15 years, in a lot of convenience stores, which accounts for about 70% of energy drink sales, you've got a full door, maybe even two doors, depending on the store, selling energy drinks. And you've seen at the same time the amount of space dedicated to carbonated soft drinks shrinking and, and basically giving share away to energy drinks because it's growing faster, and it's allowing for more profit margins from both the distributor as well as the retailer so it creates this opportunity for itself and obviously it starts with the consumer wanting the product but if you're able to have higher velocity and greater value in your your rings it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy so you go back to mid 2000s and monster was starting to gain this traction so anheuser-busch not a non-alcoholic company, but a company that still has trucks and distributors that goes and services, grocery stores and convenience stores and the like, said, Hey, you know, we we want to put you in in our trucks. And so I think the original agreement was for about half of the US. The other half of the US was a bit of a hodgepodge of distribution from a monster standpoint. And slowly the, the distribution progressed, where in the early two 2010s, uh the distribution had evolved into about half anheuser-busch and half coke because coke saw the opportunity there they had been a partner in, in international starting in the uk it was actually the first distribution partner that monster had outside of the us i mean monster was doing a little bit on their own but really it started to accelerate with coke's help in the uk and eventually that morphed into coke i think in 2014 announcing it was going to take at the time, I think, a 15 or 16% stake in Monster, which is now close to 20% because Monster has bought back a lot of stock, increasing Coke's ownership. And at the same time, that agreement made Coke the global distributor of of Monster with a couple of exceptions in certain countries. And so basically Monster kicked Anheuser-Busch out and is now fully distributed, at least domestically, through Coke, and as I said, through probably something like 97% of the world. And so if you think about distributors out there of size on a global basis, Anheuser-Busch is a, a very good distributor globally, Anheuser-Busch InBev, very good distributor, Pepsi, very good distributor. But I think many people believe the Coke is the creme de la creme. And so Monster's really positioned itself with the best distributor, the one with the global reach to put you into every single bodega on the planet, if need be, and importantly, If Monster wants to launch a new product, the Coke system can get that onto store shelves virtually the next day.
0: How much, you know, it it seems like there must be like a real chicken and egg problem for any upstart consumer food or beverage company, because obviously you need these distributor relationships to get um, to get out there. They're not easy to get. There's limited uh, there's limited shelf and uh, truck space. On the other hand, you also presumably need to have a pretty big uh, marketing effort so that people actually buy it. But if you don't have the distribution, then you can have all the marketing and brand in the world, but no one can get it. Uh, How do they sort of uh, navigate that simultaneous challenge of raising the brand awareness, becoming an entity that people uh, knew while also making sure that once people became aware of the, uh, the brand, they were able to find it?
3: Yeah, it's 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 actually interesting too. Monster, if you just take a look at, at marketing or advertising expenditure, despite it being a, a marketing company, it's not even a company that manufactures its own product. It outsources all manufacturing to third parties, so it's it's really just a brand huh. manager. Uh, despite being a brand manager. Uh, it's, it's marketing expenditures is actually pretty low as a percentage of sales. It's not a traditional, I'm going to watch an ad on TV and want to go out and buy a monster. So what they do is, is what I was saying before, you go out and sponsor athletes, events, video games, uh, rock festivals, sporting events, and, and, and the like. And that creates the lifestyle image of the brand. And becomes that, that self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, Red Bull's kind of done the same thing. They do a little bit of TV advertising, but the bread and butter is really that you're, you're sponsoring these athletes and events. And so that relies a bit more on a guerrilla marketing proposition. What Monster was really good at originally was just feet on the street, sampling, and kind of showing up at the right place to create the image that they, they wanted for the brand. And that continues, believe it or not, to this day. They've evolved, as everybody has, from traditional or more traditional kind of advertising, at least in their sense, of course, of brick and mortar, but we're a real visible in real world advertising to now digital and social media. But they're still doing it in kind of that same way, appealing to the same consumer. And it's not going to be something that you're going to find on a Jeopardy advertisement, for example. And I think it's probably going to be something that continues for the, the foreseeable future. And so I think that's a bit different than kind of the rest of the the world that I spend time analyzing, the Proctors and Gambles or Estee Lauder's or L'Oreal's of the world that are doing more traditional advertising.
4: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
2: So I'm curious, you know, you've laid out The sort of history of the company, what made it different from its major competitors, how it was doing some things um, rather unusually. So, for instance, in marketing, it wasn't spending a ton of money buying traditional ads. Instead, it was going through these sort of um, grassroots efforts or sponsorships. How did the street approach Monster in its early days like how were analysts actually viewing the company and its potential and how did that evolve over time
3: <laughs> it's, it's it's a good question frankly i'm still not sure the the street fully understands what they're they're doing or what they've created no no offense to the guys running the company but but it is interesting they don't even have an, an in-sourced investor relations function so management huh. uniquely here doesn't really even talk to investors don't talk to analysts don't talk to investors they hold for earnings calls a year and allow people to ask probably on the very minimal side of, of questions two three four five per quarter they do a couple of investor events uh, a year outside of that but but that's really it there's no real outreach on their part and so uh, that's actually what to me has created such an interesting proposition from an analyst standpoint to covering it. And if you you think about it, yes, they're a public company, but they almost treat themselves as a private company as a result of what I just said. And, and you couple that with Red Bull being an actual private company and that Coke and Pepsi, yes, they distribute energy drinks, but don't have really any of their own and have never really had any success doing that, that there's almost no information out there from an energy drink company standpoint. So you're left to really do a lot of feet on the street, kind of thinking about how how these businesses work and what has driven the success, which I think is fun. And it creates an opportunity to really do unique analysis, in in my opinion. I think one of the things that we've done a good job of historically is that, is, is looking at things in a way that people haven't looked at it before. I mean, ultimately, I see my job as trying to help investors make decisions and help them make money. And I think in a company like this, where they give more information in regulatory filings, but not necessarily something that you have an investor relations person or, or team kind of directing people to find that it creates an opportunity to do that. And so if you go back you know, 15 years ago, there there was none, zil- you know, zilch. There was just very little information whatsoever. It was also a smaller company at the time. And so it was probably something that really just fell through the cracks. If you were lucky enough to cover it, maybe it was one that you'd give less focus to than covering some of the bigger companies like a Coke or Pepsi within your your coverage universe. And and it was just there because you thought it was interesting. And so in the early days, I mean, I can remember just making phone calls to private beer distributors and asking how sales are going and what they're seeing from a category standpoint. Is there any are there any other brands that are coming up? Because at the time, if you go back to the mid 2000s, Coke and Pepsi were both trying to compete in this. They saw what was happening from an energy standpoint. They saw the share shift commencing you know, even early days at that point. And so they were all trying this. And I think the fear amongst investors was these are the behemoths, the 800-pound gorillas, and they're going to come in and they're going to they're going to kill Monster and they're going to hurt Red Bull. And it just never materialized like that. And as I said, you, you started getting bigger and bigger from a distribution standpoint. I think these these big beverage companies ultimately decided if you can't beat them, you join them. Or if in this case, if you can't kill them, you distribute them. And so you still make a piece of the distribution or the profit that's out there, but you can't own the brand fully, I guess, unless you go out and and want to buy it. And it's it's, it's just very fascinating from that standpoint. I mean, I think you didn't ask the question, but there is clearly this dynamic that's still at play here that Coke owns close to 20% of the company, but Monster's still a public company. So you've got these two companies that are public answering to their own shareholders. And so you can't be fully aligned with with one another as a result of that. And so I would describe it as almost a healthy tension where I think if Coke were to ultimately buy this company, you would probably see some of that tension go away and you'd probably actually see better execution because you'd have more streamlined focus from a organizational standpoint on selling monsters. So Coke's done a good job, I think they could do a better job.
0: Is that something people uh, talk about? I mean do people speculate that at some point Coke just might buy the whole thing?
3: Yeah, there's there's a lot of speculation on that. I mean, I could probably spend an hour answering that question alone. But, <laughs> but, but in terms of the specifics, yeah, Coke is, has done what it's done. They've never increased their stakes since the original purchase. They, if, if you pay attention to current news, have some tax issues, which ultimately could result in them having to write a big check. And so that probably prevents things from from happening nearer term, their stock which I would think they could use in in a potential deal, is also down off of highs given the whole impact to their business from, from COVID. And so their, their equity is a little bit depleted relative to historical levels, so it probably makes it harder. But the flip side to it is the two guys who are running Monster, Rodney, just turned 70 end of last year. Hilton is 67. He'll be 68 middle of this year. They're not they're not young. They've been running this company for a long time and uniquely each of them own about 5% of Monster. So if you think about that on a roughly $50 billion company, they're worth an awful lot of money. (laughs) And so they're not getting younger. They're worth a ton of money. I think they want to spend more time doing other things at some point than just running Monster. They both have grandkids. They're both enjoying spending more time with them. I think they would like to travel more, assuming that one could ever actually leave their house. And so, yeah, there's this question of kind of what happens from there. In, in my humble opinion, I'm sure they would disagree with this, but I think the bench strength is at least lacking as far as visible-facing folks to the street. And it's not obvious to me who would necessarily run the company should they both get hit by a bus tomorrow, God forbid. In fact, I don't think there is somebody internally who would make sense to do that. And I think it's a very unique organization. And I think that creates a bit of a question mark about what happens. But but obviously, it, it takes it's kind of like firing nuclear weapons, I guess. It takes two people to turn the key or two sides to do that. And so you need to have a willing buyer as well as a willing seller. I'm not sure that they necessarily are willing sellers, but but you know, the right offer comes along. who Who isn't? But I think as as they get older, I think that becomes more more reasonable. But then the question is who who ultimately would buy them, and I think the distribution arrangement, and the equity ownership would put Coke in that position. I just think at present it's probably a little harder to pull off. So we'll we'll see how that goes. I have long thought that that there could be some others out there, kind of dark horses that aren't really talked about that could potentially be buyers of the business. But we'll, we'll ultimately see how that plays out. But but you know for the time being. I think they're they're very happy and they're they're obviously very successful in doing what they're doing, but we'll see what happens in time.
2: So Joe mentioned in the intro that uh, we did a previous episode on um, Domino's Pizza, which was another stock that had a stellar performance, perhaps um, unexpectedly, and uh, we also did a podcast about tobacco companies. Again, a similar story. You would have expected that an industry that's been under a lot of pressure over the years uh, might've suffered, but actually they've generated pretty consistent returns. Are there any parallels between... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Are there any parallels between tobacco and energy drinks here? I mean, ultimately, you're selling a product that a lot of people would classify as unhealthy and addictive. Is the business model as simple as that?
3: Well, I think the difference is energy drinks don't kill people.
2: True. That's fair.
3: (laughs) And I I think there has been a question historically about the health of, of these products. If you go back, I think it's now seven, eight years ago, it had come to the attention of various political folks in Washington who ultimately put it to the FDA to figure out whether these products were healthy or not and whether they should be sold. And Rodney from Monster and the then CFO at Rockstar and a senior marketing executive at Red Bull were pulled in front of, I think, a Senate committee to talk about the health of energy drinks. And ultimately, the FDA said the amount of caffeine in this product was well within Are daily limits. The other stuff that helps to make it an energy drink, things like taurine or guarana or ginseng, are all what would be considered generally regarded as safe, meaning that they're all okay to go into the body. And there's nothing that we can say or do that should change how these things are, are sold. But ultimately, the energy drink companies had come to an agreement to kind of have this this go away, which is that they just put more explicit messaging on the cans to say pregnant women shouldn't drink these, you shouldn't drink more than one a day, and here's the amount of caffeine that's in the can. And you've seen over the years various countries that have tried to do similar things, have tried to ban sales to minors. Uh, Monster also agreed not to market to kids under 12, whatever that means, because they don't really market anyway. So I'm not sure how a 12-year-old or younger could be differentiated from those that are older from that but you know the the point is it's been vetted it's been vetted all over the place and it effectively still has less caffeine than a espresso at starbucks or thinking about a frappuccino that has a lot of calories in it it's no it's no worse for you than kind of anything else that's out there i mean i'm not arguing these are good for you i'm not arguing carbonate soft drinks are good for you but it's it's in that same vein and it's not something as i said that will ultimately link to cancer i think pretty definitively and so It is what it is. Um, I I think it's interesting, too, just stepping back. It's never been perceived as as good for you, and the world seems to evolve into more healthful products. And yet, while the consumer says on one hand that that's what they they want to consume, whether it's eat or drink, that they want things that are cleaner label and more natural and organic and whatnot, the actions, the sales, the volumes, the ink. Accelerating growth globally of energy drinks would speak otherwise. And I think ultimately, like coffee, sure, caffeine is an addictive drug to some extent, but this is something that fills a need state. Consumers are sleeping less, working more, want more focus, and this is what it, it offers. Uh, but but as I said, you know, interestingly, it still has less caffeine in it than an equivalent cup of coffee. Yes, there's more caffeine in it, but I wouldn't say it's materially more. It's kind of four times the amount of caffeine as a a can of Coke. But what does that really do necessarily from a body standpoint? I don't think it's all that significant. So it's a long-winded answer saying not healthy, hasn't seemed to have an impact, doesn't really harm you. It's been vetted across various regulatory bodies. And um, I think at this point, I mean, knock on wood, but it seems like most have generally accepted what I just said.
0: So... I want to like look into the future a little bit. I mean, you mentioned that outside of the current management, there's not an obvious replacement, perhaps a reason for them to sell. Talk to us about like where has the growth been lately and what are the opportunities going forward? Like where will, you know, where theoretically will the next 10 years of growth come from for a company
3: like yeah, this? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And I I'll start by saying in the U.S., which is still two-thirds of revenue, it's still growing at at least a high single, if not a low double-digit rate. So here, here is yeah. a business that's been around in the U.S. now for 19 years and still growing at that rate. And they don't really take price, so it's almost all volume that's that's driving it. just wow. more incremental cans being consumed. The U.S. is a bigger profit center than, than the international piece. They just have higher margins here. And so it probably accounts for 90-ish percent of global profit. And it produces just massive cash flows. So you've got this business, just before I answer the question on where does it go, yeah, you you, you talked about it being a great stock. It's just the greatest business ever invented. I mean, these guys (laughs) don't produce anything themselves. There's no real capital expenditures. They spend a percent of sales or, or less per year. There's no debt on the balance sheet. So it just mints money, a billion dollars plus in free cash flow a year that they use to basically just buy back stock. So you've got this business that's growing domestically at a, you know, call it a high single digit rate, I think can grow at that rate for at least the foreseeable future here. And, 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 and we didn't touch on it, but Ken, if you want to later, I, I think they've done a really good job of expanding usage occasions. So you keep the core consumer and you innovate into new product categories, and that has really driven interest and incrementality of of purchases, and it has contributed to the consistent growth uh, in the U.S. And in the U.S., they have around a 40 share or so on a dollar basis of the energy drink category about the same as Red Bull volumetrically. They're actually higher because they sell, as I said, twice the volume for the same price. So they are the leader from a volume standpoint on a market share basis in the U.S. If you take that 40 percent, and look at it globally excluding the US, our best guess, because there's really not good data, is that they're probably somewhere in the low to mid teens as a percentage of global share. Red Bull is somewhere around a 50 share. So if you think about what they've been able to do in the US starting at zero and now being a volume share leader in the US, if they can have that kind of success outside of the US, you go from a 12 or 13 global share to a 40 share in a category that's growing at a, I don't know, 10% or more rate on a global basis, you get a business that's three, four times the size of what you have today on an outside the US basis, which today is roughly a third of the business. And you have a business that's growing in the US at a high single digit rate, you've got a really long growth rate for, for the revenues in this company. And to put in perspective, best we can tell, Monster in in 2021 will do about $5 billion in revenue globally. I would guess Red Bull is probably twice that size. You're talking about a $10 billion company. So Monster can easily see its sales double from here over a long period of time, just based on the math that I just outlined. Hmm. And so it's partly just this getting more distribution, increasing brand awareness, and expanding usage occasions through innovation. And the Coke system, this is where the Coke system has really come in and done a good job. I think in the U.S., Monster didn't need Coke, but outside the U.S., I think Coke has really been helpful in just getting the product to market in an efficient, effective manner and really getting more product on shelf. And I think that's also an opportunity beyond just category growing. If you think about a typical 7-Eleven cooler in the U.S., you could have 12 to 15 monsters sitting in that cooler. If you go outside the US, on average, you're probably seeing three to five per cooler. So there's also an opportunity to just add more products, those incremental products that have expanded the usage occasions and brought in more consumers to the monster business. And that has been one of the big things that has driven outperformance relative to Red Bull, in my opinion, that Red Bull has been more about just adding different packaging sizes, and until more recently, just not really wanting to add flavor extensions. And Monster, beyond just flavor extensions, has created new sub-brands. They've created juice, you know, energy plus juice. They've created coffee plus energy. I mean, it sounds almost like an oxymoron. And yet they've created a multi-billion dollar business globally that they, are that they, along with Starbucks and others, are competing in. And so they've, they've created this. I mean, when they launched that in 2005 or six, this Java monster product. I, I'm sure I wrote something obnoxious at the time, like, oh my God, how could you possibly be successful with doing that? And sure enough, here we are. So they've just done a really good job of kind of going to where the consumer is going to be. And I think, you know, the, the, the thing that you, you can't overemphasize enough is that the management here, you know, back to the beginning of what you said about what has made this so successful, they've just been, the management here Rodney, Hilton, Mark, those three guys have just been brilliant at figuring out where the puck was going and trying to figure out how to expand those usage occasions for the consumer. And and the Red Bull, maybe being a big, fat, happy private company, never had to do that. And Monster was given the opportunity and clearly capitalized on it.
4: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors,
1: LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours, effectively manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com.
2: I'm curious. We've talked a lot about the success of Monster and you seem pretty optimistic about its future. What, in your opinion, is the biggest threat to the company?
3: I think the biggest threat at this point, the thing, the, you know, I guess there's probably two things. The, the two biggest things we hear are, one, how long can category growth continue? Because that's the most important. If they can retain their share or even grow their share of a category that's growing at that rate, I think they're they're going to be pretty happy. The second would be, you know, and sort of related to that, what about new entrants into the category? And so if you go back 12 to 18 months ago, there was a a new entrant or relatively new entrant into the category in the U.S. called Bang, which is selling what is called performance energy, which is basically selling, if you can believe it, twice the caffeine in a same 16-ounce can as Monster. And that was something that started to resonate with consumers. And like Monster, they moved from smaller distribution into Anheuser-Busch distribution, and they're now actually distributed by Pepsi. And so there's questions about whether the share that they were able to get to fairly quickly, which was mid to high single digits, and it's, it's since stopped and, and moved backwards. But that share they got fairly quickly, it wasn't as hard to get as maybe some people thought. And so digital social media, new age marketing can allow or potentially allow new entrants to come in and reduce the barriers to entry. You see a few smaller companies like Celsius and C4 Uh, also seeing very strong growth at this point off of admittedly a very small base but you're seeing more competition in the space so the question is how relevant can Monster be within that and so it's just not one of these things that I think they can sit there and rest on their laurels it's always about constant innovation and tweaking the image and the products that they're offering And, and to Monster's credit for example when the world started focusing on this or the, the energy world, I suppose, the subset of losers like me that focus on the beverage industry. When people started focusing on this Bang product taking share fall 2018, Monster was able to get a product out to market within six months called Rain that ultimately got to a three share of the category, stopped the growth of Bang and has done quite well considering it was a brand nobody had ever heard of two years ago. That brand, I think, at this point could be doing something on order of of hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue at retail so they've done a really good job of creating something out of nothing so but that's the question it's how can you continue the growth and how you can sustain the share you have
0: i mean i'm curious bigger picture i mean beyond monster uh you cover consumer brands um overall this question of the degree to which New, uh, new avenues for promotion: social media, Instagram, and new avenues for distribution. The whole direct-to-consumer phenomenon. How much space for that is? We have another conversation. Actually, the timing-wise, I think it's going to come out right after this episode, where we talk a little bit about that. But from your perspective, you know, you mentioned the importance of these distribution deals: the Coke Network, this sort of the oligo- oligopoly of distribution in the U.S. and globally. How much under threat is that from the Internet from new stuff, or how much can it uh, withstand um, these sort of uh, these changes?
3: I don't want to understate the importance, but in a category like beverages, where, as I said at the beginning, 70 percent of energy drink sales are done at convenience store, meaning as an impulse buy, it's going to be pretty hard to see that materialize. Monster and others are selling more online and on Amazon than they, they ever have, but those numbers are, I would estimate, probably something like 2% of sales at this point. So it's it's still pretty small, and the idea of shipping heavy cases of beverage is still not something that necessarily appeals or that I think will get traction like it could in selling sneakers or in selling pet food or or, or something like that. So I, I think in this category in particular, it's probably a little bit harder. I won't say that it will be impossible, but I think that's an advantage of, of where we are. And historically speaking, you know, at least so far, you just you haven't seen any brands like that gain traction, partly because you, you want to be where the consumers are and they need to see the product to want to buy it.
0: I think that's a good place to stop. it. do you have any other sort of like uh anything we missed in terms of like understanding this story and where it's going that we should uh think about?
3: It's worth pointing out and and, and making it uh making it important that this innovation thing is, is really what has driven success. And the the guys at this company are, are very good at understanding what consumers want. And I think they're still despite being a company that will do 5 billion in revenue this year, operating like a company that's going to do a couple hundred million in revenue. Like I I mentioned with the rain product, I couldn't even imagine how long it would take a product like that to come to market at Coke or something equivalent to Procter and Gamble, but it would take probably two years of market research and consumer testing. And these guys were able to get it done in months and early last year, Red Bull launched a watermelon flavor, which sounds simple, but it, it just killed it. It did
0: I'm sure Tracy would love that in a cocktail. There you go.
3: Probably very good with vodka and a little bit of sprig of basil or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. You joke, but now that you say it, Red Bull watermelon with a sprig of basil and some vodka, like
3: well, but 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 if you don't want the full sugar product, so that product did really well. Monster put a product in the market on their zero calorie line in September. So within months of Hmm. seeing the success they were able to get that product the formulation correct the taste profile right and they were able to get it to market i will say if i'm able to do anything here it's it's to at least get you to try a monster at this point i feel like both of you have never tried one
0: (laughs) which uh what's your favorite what's your favorite uh your favorite one to try and i'll get that one what's your favorite flavor
3: i think you should try one of the ultra lines Try Ultra Sunrise, which is the orange flavor, or Ultra Paradise, which is their—I don't know—I'd call it like an apple, kiwi, cucumber kind of thing. Um, but it's those are probably the ones that I would try first.
0: All right, I'm gonna—I'm looking up.
2: I'm—I'm I'm gonna test the. Uh, no, what
3: were you gonna test? The watermelon with vodka, obviously.
2: Obviously, but I—I I was gonna say. I'm gonna test the uh, the strength of Coke's uh, distribution network and see if I can actually find a monster product in Hong Kong. That's job number one.
3: Uh, you will definitely try. be able to find a monster in Hong Kong.
0: I'm just I'm just envisioning Tracy on a rooftop in Hong Kong at some you know where they apparently like they have the virus under control, drinking a uh, monster watermelon basil cocktail and I'm, I'm very jealous of that i'm very jealous of that moment right now
3: i, I don't think it. you're going to find a watermelon ultra in hong kong unfortunately okay. but you'll they, they actually are <laughs> expanding in china at this point too which it, it, they have even a slightly different product offering there than they do in the rest of the world but they have three three of their mainstream products and two non-carbonated tea products there so i'm, I'm confident you'll be able to find at least a couple of those on shelves
2: I'm on All it. Right,
0: before this episode comes out, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get one. All right, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. I've been uh, so curious about this company for a long time, and I feel like you, uh, you told its story uh, extremely well. So, really appreciate you joining us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: That was great, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Tracy, I am kind of embarrassed that I've never had one. I, I I think I probably have like 2004, 2005. Like I have like some memory of like going to the bagel store on Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg. And I remember like seeing them. Like I have this vague memory of like the first time I like saw them proliferate, but it's definitely been a been too long since I've had a, a monster beverage.
2: But that's kind of an interesting thing, right? So I, I have a feeling that Even for most people who haven't actually tried Monster, they're aware of the branding um, Yeah, because it became such a big thing and it was so distinctive. I do think that whole conversation was obviously fascinating, Uh, the strength of management, this idea that they're able to um, respond to the market very, very quickly, that their advertising has been different to... um, other traditional drinks companies, Uh, the fact that they have zero debt on their balance sheet is absolutely amazing in the current environment. But one thing I found really interesting was, you know, Mark was kind of hinting at this, but it was the way the street approached the company. Um, They didn't really understand it. Monster was kind of unique in the sense that it was a public company, but it acted a bit like a private company. And I suspect also... Mark didn't go into this directly, but I I suspect that there is also a little bit of, um, I I guess like arrogance or or classism towards the product. Like monster was always the blue collar product for a less well off market, I suppose. Whereas Red Bull was the sort of white collar one. And I wonder how much of that fed into people's, um, investment decisions or analysis. Yeah.
0: I, there's just no question. Like if I have to in my mind's eye mm. and again, it's it's my own biases and judgment. And but like in my mind's eye, you know, like if I have uh, if I imagine someone drinking a Red Bull, it's like some like Euro guy who's like six foot one <laughs> wearing a white shirt and a club and, you know, like super fit. And if I imagine what I would have just assumed is as like a monster drinker, it's like someone playing video games in the U.S. and Florida and having a headset on talking, you know, like whatever game they're playing and with a baseball cap backwards and everything. Like, it's just like <laughs> I hadn't I hadn't, you know, in my mind, it was like, oh, yeah, they're competitors. But then as soon as you said that, it's like so clear to me, like how I've long like stereotyped. The two, uh, the consumers. So, but I guess it's kind of accurate.
2: You're going to get a lot of angry uh, monster fans coming after you now.
0: I know. But you are definitely uh, the Red Bull demo, Tracy.
2: I, I, Sorry. I do. I would not like to put myself in that category. I, uh, I support it because Austria has very, very few things of which to be proud. And probably our most uh, famous export is something that you wouldn't want to take credit for. So, um, you know, we latch on to what we can and Red Bull is one of them, even though as Mark pointed out, uh, the actual recipe came from Thailand, but I'm I'm going to convert. I'm or at least I'm going to try Monster. I'll try to find it in Hong Kong and uh you know, we can talk on Twitter or somewhere else about how we feel about it. Do the review. Sounds good.
0: I'm I'm looking forward okay. to our uh, to our review. I'll
2: uh, I'll take that selfie when I'm, you know, on the roof deck drinking some sort of a uh, Monster-based yeah. cocktail.
0: Post it to Instagram.
2: Okay. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit bloomberg.com enterprisedata enterprise data to learn more.